1829, Martin Van Buren, then the governor of New York, wrote the following to the president. The canal system of this country is being threatened by the spread of a new form of transportation known as railroads. The federal government must preserve our canals for these reasons. If canal boats are supplanted by railroads, serious unemployment will result. Captains, cooks, drivers, hustlers, repairmen, and lock tenders will be left without any means of livelihood. Additionally, he wrote, canal boats are essential for our defense. In the event of trouble with England, the Erie Canal could be the only means by which we move supplies. In closing, Van Buren is quoted as saying, the Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel through the countryside at the breakneck speed of 15 miles per hour. Do you ever wonder how God feels when we speak for him? Fast forward now to the late 1800s. No business matched the financial and political dominance of the railroad. Trains dominated the transportation industry of the United States, moving both people and goods throughout the country. However, a fantastic new mode of transportation was on the horizon, the car. And just as Van Buren had resisted the change to the railroad, there was resistance to the advancement of the automobile. In fact, the railroad industry leaders actively ignored the advancement of the car, the rise of independent transportation through personal vehicles. In his book, The Search for Excellence, Tom Peters points out the railroad barons did not truly understand the business that they were in. Peters observes they thought they were in the train business, but in fact, they were in the transportation business. Time passed them by, as did opportunity, because they didn't see what their real purpose was, change. Some people see change as a very negative thing, a scary thing. Governor Van Buren saw only problems when he considered the expansion of the railroad. He did not see any sort of possibility. He wanted to dig in and stick with what was known, what was comfortable. And to shore up his argument, he even thought he could speak for God. Surely God never intended for folks to travel by train at the breakneck speed of 15 miles per hour. Oh, the blasphemy. A short 60 years later, we hear almost identical arguments about cars. Why would we trade rail transportation for cars? That makes no sense. We already have a rail structure in place. Why would people want to transport themselves individually in a car when they could travel by train? No one weighed in on what God may have thought of automobiles. I'm curious as to what their thoughts would have been. Aren't people funny? I love people. I've loved people since I was a kid. I love to people watch. Sadly, I love reality TV. I just like to watch people. Just like to see people in different situations and see how they'll react. I hear the cry of people, we can't have trains. We must use canals or the results will be disastrous. 
Then we can't use cars. We must use trains or the results will be disastrous. Why do we resist change so much? Why do we give in to the fear of change? Why do we become paralyzed in the midst of change? I'm guilty of it. Are you? Church folks love change. It's their favorite. We have spent the last few weeks studying the letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. Paul and the folks in the new church were dealing with some pretty heady topics, some theological questions that those in the church were struggling with. Paul is speaking to them about understanding Jesus' resurrection and the trueness of that story and how it then becomes our story. Jesus is raised. We will be raised. Let's just take a minute and pray for whatever those sirens are. Holy God, go with the first responders, wherever they may go, whatever situation they are called to. We pray for healing and wholeness. Amen. Paul is speaking to them about understanding Jesus' story and our story. He is reminding them that this understanding is critical to their belief because it's foundational. It's what we believe. It's who we are. Today, we break from reading the letter from Paul as we read the gospel account of Jesus' mountaintop transfiguration. We read this morning, Laura read to us from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel recounts how Jesus had taken Peter and his companions, which we learn in another Gospel is James and John, high up onto the mountain. Just the Savior and his three friends, these three disciples were present there. Peter and the others had fallen asleep, and when they woke, they saw Jesus in a way they had never seen him before. Luke's gospel doesn't give us a lot of details. It simply says they saw his glory. Matthew, though, in his gospel account of the transfiguration, gives us more detail. He writes, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them high up in the mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Talk about change. Jesus has taken this moment to share his holy nature with these beloved friends and disciples. He has shed his humanity. He has shown in full divinity. Can you imagine? These three chosen men are standing face to face with God. Witness to the light as it shines from within him, emanating from his face, from his body. And as if that were not enough, Jesus is not alone. Two prophets who have been gone for centuries stand with him. Moses, having died centuries before Elijah, having been taken up, they were standing and talking to Jesus. I can't imagine the amount of overwhelm that the disciples felt. They, they understood Jesus to be the Son of God. He had already done so many miraculous things and taught them endlessly about the nature of God. 
And now they have ascended, literally ascended, to a new understanding of who Jesus is. Or maybe it's too much for them to truly understand the glory that stands before them. As they stand, watching and trying to process what they are seeing, Peter speaks up. Imagine that. Peter speaks up and he, he asks if they should stay up there on the mountaintop. I think he's trying in true Peter fashion to manage the moment. Peter was a leader, and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be up here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love how the story plays out. Scripture says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So think of this from, from our human perspective. While Peter is casting his vision of how this newly transformed divine Jesus should be handled, Peter's trying to manage God. Anybody ever been there? Peter's casting his vision of how they can manage Jesus, trying to step in and step up to manage this new development, God speaks. As Peter was still speaking, God interrupts and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard the declaration from the cloud, this instruction from the heavens, they fell face down in the dirt, terrified. Understandable. I've always found it fascinating, though, that they weren't terrified before that. Moses, Elijah, appearing centuries after they had died or left the earth. Not terrifying. Jesus in full divinity, face shining like the sun, clothes as bright as light. Not terrifying. Voice of God from a cloud, face in the dirt. In my mind's eye, I almost see them being awestruck, taking in this scene awed by the metamorphosis of Jesus as the brilliant and holy light emanates from him, awed by the sight of two long-gone prophets standing and speaking with their God. Finally, when God interrupts Peter's brainstorming, it's too much, and they're overcome by it all, and down they go. Change. The disciples would be facing so much change in the coming days. Lent is my least favorite season in the church. I struggle throughout Lent because I think of the humanity of Jesus. I think of my Jesus harmed. I think of my Jesus broken. The disciples would be facing so much change in the coming days. God knew this. God knew that they needed to see the divinity of Jesus before they saw Jesus, the man, be broken and killed. Change. Change often requires death of some kind. 
When something changes, oftentimes something dies. When Van Buren wrote to the president in the 1800s, there was fear in his words. He was clinging to what he knew worked, the canal system. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? This is how we've always done it. He was clinging to what he knew worked. Because if the railroad thing didn't work out, what would happen? And then they were clinging to the railroad. Because if this new car thing didn't work out, what would happen? That's why we fear change, because we know that something will die in some form. If we accept that the railroad is coming, then there's going to be the death of the canal system. If we accept that the car is coming, then there's going to be the death of the railroad system that we know. There have been many times that we as people, as community, as the church, we in our professional lives, our personal lives, we as a family, we as a community, we as a church have been asked to accept change. And our immediate thought is, if we accept this change, what we know and what we love and we cherish, something will die. We don't know what's on the other side. I think that's what prompted many of the early believers' questions to Paul. If I accept this new understanding of grace and what Jesus did for us, then what I know and what has been said for hundreds of years will die and it will be different. And what if it's not right? What's on the other side? And so we fear. They had an idea of death and resurrection and it was too big to accept the change and they were struggling. God knew that the disciples were about to be tested in a way that they did not understand. They were about to see their beloved teacher die, and they would face a fear greater than ever before. But God knew that on the other side of that change, there would be resurrection. On the other side of that death, there would be everlasting life. God knew that as dark as Friday was, that Sunday was coming. God knew that as broken as Jesus looked when they carefully laid him lifeless in that tomb, that he would walk out victorious and transformed, and we would be redeemed with every step he took from that grave. God knew. God knew that these disciples, these most influential disciples needed to see a glimpse of glory so they could tolerate what was coming. God knew that some of the worst would come from within their own group. Some of the worst would come from the mouth of Peter as he said, I don't, I don't know him. God knew that the disciples would face their own death some very difficult, and God knew that they needed to see the faces of their, these living prophets. They needed to see that beyond their human death would be life. I don't blame Peter for wanting to stay there. I don't blame him for saying, you know, this is pretty good. 
I'll build a shelter for you and for Moses and for Elijah, and, and we'll just stay here. I don't blame anyone when they resist change. Because I know I've resisted. I know I've resisted change that's been thrust upon me. I know that I've resisted death in the way that it comes, whether it be loss of a job, loss of a home, loss of a marriage, loss of a child, loss of a family member, loss of a parent, loss. I've resisted it. I've dug in because I don't know what's on the other side of it. I don't blame Peter for wanting to stay there. Let's just stay here forever. Let's just hang out here where everything's okay. Peter wanted to delay the inevitable. He, like so many of us, fought the coming change because he couldn't see what was on the other side. We must save the canals. We can't let the railroads come because we're afraid of the change that will come and we can't see the other side. We must ignore the coming automobile because it will it will destroy the railroad system and we're afraid of the change that will come on the other side. Let's just stay up here in the safety of your glory, Lord, because we're afraid of the change that will come and we can't see on the other side. But God interrupts our pleas and our plans because the God of the mountain knows what lies on the other side of the change we fear. Change is hard, it's scary. Sometimes we try to stop it, sometimes we try to ignore it, sometimes we try to even manage it. But it's inevitable. What we are called to do is to trust God in the midst of it. You know, when the disciples found themselves face down in the dirt, Jesus came to them. I love, I love this part. He came to them and he said, get up. He didn't get down to comfort them. He said, no, you're going to stand. Get up. I don't know what kind of change you're in the midst of. I don't know what you've been, what has been thrust upon you or what situation you have been thrust into. I don't know what, I don't know if you're on a mountaintop and saying, whoo, let's just stay here. This is good. This is comfortable. I like this. Or if you are down in the dirt, scared out of your mind, not knowing what's going to come next. I don't know where you're at, but I know where God is. He's coming to you and he's going to say, stand up, get up. He didn't say, and I, I want you to catch this. He didn't say, don't be afraid, get up. He said, get up. Get up. Before I tell you everything's going to be okay, get up. Before I tell you what, that I know what's on the other side of the mountain, get up. Don't be afraid. Amen. Don't be afraid. I know what's on the other side. I know you're scared. I know you're dirty. I know you don't want this to happen. Get up. And don't be afraid. Because I know. And I'm here. And we're going to do this together. 
and it's still going to hurt, but I know what it means to hurt. But I also know what it means to step from death into life, to step from darkness into light, to step from all that is wrong into all that is right. Get up. And all God's people said, 